Good morning, church. I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 14. We will pick up in verse 12 and consider verses 12 through 25 in a moment together as you find your place uh, and get ready. I want to uh, let you know in the lobby today as well as uh, in the hallway outside of our adult small group areas Uh, We have 21 days of prayer guides for you as our elders. Again, I think this is our third year now to do this, are calling our congregation to pray together earnestly in the 21 days leading up to uh, Easter. So that means it will begin next Sunday on the 19th. But we would love for you to go ahead and grab the prayer guides today so you can be ready to do that as a part of your prayer time Uh, next Sunday. We will pray together uh, the first week praying for ourselves, that the Lord will prepare our hearts for Easter. The second week we'll be praying for our congregation, that the Lord would prepare our collective hearts and our church uh, for Easter. And then the third week we'll be be praying for our community and other churches in our community that God would prepare us Uh, for what he would do on Resurrection Sunday coming up in April. So please grab these guides. We have plenty of them out there uh, and be prepared to begin praying together for three weeks starting next Sunday. I invite you now to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word beginning in Mark 14 verse 12, reading three sections this morning down through verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that we can be a part of this gathered body of believers. That just as you do in this text, 
you've provided a place for us. Let us not take that for granted, that we can be together, a family, sharing a meal in love together as we worship our Savior, as we study his word, and we long for his coming. Father, would you bless us, we pray today, as we consider the truth of your word, as we move through it. Father, I pray that you would help me to be clear, that you would open hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel of Jesus and the new covenant offered through his broken body and spilled blood. Let us heed the warning of Judas and see the great sovereignty of our God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week in our introduction to Mark chapter 14, I told you that it would take us the entire month of March to walk through these various sections. Mark 14 is a lengthy chapter in this uh, gospel. And I told you that the primary theme of Mark 14 is the abandonment of Jesus. That Jesus goes to being surrounded by his close disciples and even surrounded by great crowds who are affirming his teaching to the end being abandoned, betrayed, and denied. And I want us, the reason we're slowing down here, I just want us to feel this kind of week after week as we move towards uh, Easter in April, that, that we get a sense of what's happening in these last maybe 48 hours or so of Jesus' life, now coming to that Thursday here in this text. And I think it's important for me to, to kind of address one of the ways that some people approach these last days of Jesus' life. And I'll use it just first as an example from my own. Like many of you, not like all of you, but like many of you, I tend to be a planner. I, I, I like to know what's going to happen. And so I plan my days pretty tightly. I plan my weeks I, I, I plan trips. If my family, we have, uh, as most of you know, I'll, after our Mark series, I will be taking a 12-week sabbatical from being lead pastor of our church, and other people will be coming here and preaching, and our family has planned some travel during that time. My wife may not be able to tell you anything that we're doing, but I can tell you to the day everything that we're going to do because I am a planner, and I have planned it. But inevitably, something will happen right? A flight will be delayed. Something that we were going to do outside will be ruined by the, by the weather. Lord, could somebody get sick? Who knows? Something will come up and cause us to have to change some type of plan, move one thing from one day to another. Sometimes we make plans and all of them have to be scrapped entirely because of something that happens. That's the way some people approach this last week and particularly these last day or two of Jesus's earthly ministry is they think that there was one plan that was somehow interrupted by the Sanhedrin or the Romans and Jesus by just calamity ended up on a cross. Folks, that is the wrong way to approach the life of Jesus. It's the wrong way for us to see this final week of his 
life and ministry, we need to see that God is in complete control of every interaction that Jesus has, including Mark 14, his progressive abandonment to where he is left alone. Our main idea of today's sermon is that every detail is sovereignly prepared for Jesus to establish the new covenant through his death and resurrection. Through these three stories here in Mark 14 that I think connect to one another around this central theme, that God is sovereignly in control of Jesus' life. And God is sovereignly in control of our lives. Because this is his creation and we are his creatures. Submitting to him who sees all and knows all and ordains all and is in control of all. Jesus didn't just happen to end up because of bad luck or bad circumstances on a cross. He was moving there intentionally. And we'll begin to see some steps towards that in these three events today. First... A a sovereignly prepared place. Look back with me in verses 12 through 16, the first event that happens here of these three. And on the first day of unleavened bread, I, I explained the feast of unleavened bread last week. Seven days, the first of which actually Passover, Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, two separate events that they had combined into one. So this is the day of Passover. It's, they will begin to, they will actually receive Passover once the sun sets but the Passover lamb would be sacrificed during this day. Maybe as many as a quarter of a million lambs would be sacrificed in Jerusalem um, during this time. His disciples said, verse 12, where will you go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, you may ask, well, why can't he just do this in Bethany? He's hanging out probably with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, why doesn't he just eat the Passover there? Because you couldn't eat the Passover in Bethany. The Passover had to be eaten inside the walls of Jerusalem. This is why all of Israel would come to Jerusalem. This is where they had to eat the Passover. And can you imagine the number of people? It's like Mary and Joseph trying to find a place to stay in Bethlehem. Where in the world are we going to have this? Nobody had made a plan. This would have stressed me. And apparently it's stressing some of the disciples. Jesus, where are we going to prepare? And notice, notice the pronoun. Where are we going to prepare for you to eat the Passover? We're not really worried about us, but we kind of think you need to be in Jerusalem to eat the Passover. Where are you going to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher, that's Jesus, says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there. Prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. So this first event is all about preparation. And, and while apparently some of the disciples are at least somewhat concerned about finding a place for Jesus and by extension them who are with Jesus to be able to share in the Passover meal at sundown that evening, Jesus is not worried about it because he understands the sovereign plan and preparation of God, that the Father has a plan and a place prepared. 
Jesus has full confidence of this because he is God. And he knows and trusts that a place is prepared. And so he sends his disciples to do something that should stand out as somewhat unique to us. They tell him to go into the city. Well, first off, remember, everybody has come into Jerusalem. For those of you that are old enough to remember this, go back in your minds to, I don't know, maybe the early 1990s when everybody loved going to the mall. Nobody loves going to the mall anymore, but we used to all go to the mall. Now, go in your mind to the mall on December 24th and try to find one person. That's what Jesus has sent them into, okay? I want you to go to the most crowded place you can imagine, and I want you to try to find one person. But he gives them a person that is going to stand out. He says, I want you to go and find a man carrying water. You say, well, wouldn't there be a lot of men carrying water? No, there wouldn't, because men didn't carry water. Women carried water. And there were a couple of places in Jerusalem where women would have gone to get water. Most likely, this would be the Pool of Shalom. That's where they would have gone. That was the primary place, particularly on the side of Jerusalem where this is happening, that they would have gone and gotten water. And so they likely go to that side of Jerusalem and begin to walk around. And lo and behold, they find this man carrying water, and it happens just as Jesus had told them it would. Now, I'm going to do something here in the sermon that I don't often do. I'm going to delve into the realm of conjecture for just a moment. Now, any number of biblical scholars promote any number of hypotheses about all kinds of texts that really have not a whole lot of support, but sometimes are interesting to us. And this is one of those moments. Conjecture about the text is usually unhelpful, but there's a possible scenario at play here that I not only find interesting, but I think kind of supports the point that I'm preaching. And so I'm going to delve into that realm of conjecture. By the way, I'm going to do it again next week along these same lines. So pay attention now, pay attention next week. These things will come together for you. I actually believe Mark here shows us something, or may at least, show us something that's important. These men go to this busy place. They find a man carrying water, standing out to them. They follow that man to his home. He is not the master of the house, okay? Someone else is the master of the house. He says to the master of the house, we're here. You've prepared a place, and he had prepared a place. Well, what if, and I think this is not a, a huge leap. What if the place that is prepared for them becomes just as, a, just as Peter's home was kind of in, in Galilee, their central location of Jesus's ministry for about three years in Galilee. What if this home becomes their central location of ministry in the book of Acts? Because we see this in Acts chapter one. In Acts chapter one, the, the disciples, right, Jesus has, has ascended and they return to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olives. This is right after the ascension of Jesus. And, and, and when they entered, they went up to the upper room. It's the same words, right? So we have this sense that maybe the disciples here in Acts 1, they list the disciples for us in verse 13, and that they in one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It seems like some location 
very possibly this location has become their center base of ministry in Jerusalem. They don't go back to ministry in Galilee. They stay in Jerusalem. Jesus has told them to do so. Now, if we fast forward in the story just a few months, Peter is arrested in Acts chapter 12. And we're told in Acts chapter 12, he's sleeping between two soldiers and he's chained and bound to them. And in verse 7, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and light shone in the cell and he struck Peter on the side and woke him and says, get up quickly. And the chains fall off of him, tells him to dress himself, to hurry and to go. Then in verse 11 of that chapter, he says, when Peter came to himself and said, now we're now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all, the, uh, all that the Jewish people were expecting. And he says in verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, John, whose other name was Mark, is John Mark, who goes on the first missionary journey with Paul, eventually writes the gospel of Mark. So here's the point of conjecture. It's at least possible, I think very interestingly possible, that the man carrying the jug of water is our author. That Mark himself, a young man sent by his mother to get water, encounters the disciples and his home becomes the home base of ministry for the disciples' ministry in Jerusalem. You say, why, why delve into that conjecture? Well, here, here's, here's why. We delve into this conjecture. This, this, there's no proof of that in the text. I think you can connect some dots and see at least it's possible. But it, it supports the point because we should see that it would not be beyond God to not only provide a place for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate the Passover, but to sovereignly begin to prepare in the heart of a young man his journey to eventually write this story for us. That God is sovereignly preparing and ordering his world in a way that none of us sees. And none of us knows, and we don't get to see all of the pieces for it. And we so often worry when we don't have full control. But we're called to give up that control and say, I'm going to trust that God has a place prepared. I'm going to trust that God knows what tomorrow holds. Now let me just provide a mini moment of application for us. Some of us over-spiritualize this and over-mystify our life, and then we say to God, all right, God, I'm going to go looking for a man carrying a jug of water. That's not the application of this text. We don't need to go looking for signs because God has sovereignly prepared his word for us. And so following his preparation is now much more simple for us. What God has revealed in scripture is what we need to walk in. So you don't have to wonder about what is it that God wants me to do. He has told you, oh man, what is good. Go do it. Wherever he leads you, go do it. No matter what tomorrow holds, go do it because God has prepared it and we can trust him. We can trust him with tomorrow. We can trust him with the rest of our lives. And what we do is simply walk in what God has set before us in his word. 
just as he has sovereignly prepared a place for Jesus and his disciples and maybe even Mark to observe the Passover and this first Lord's Supper. God has sovereignly prepared your steps and your ways that you would walk in him as you walk in them. Number two, a sovereignly prepared betrayal. Look at this next story. And when it was evening, so now it's all happened. We fast forwarded to the evening. He came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, is, it is one of the 12 who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. First, let's just deal with the primary point here, and that is we already know of the betrayal of Jesus, but we now see that it is sovereignly prepared. That, that God is orchestrating even Judas's betrayal of Jesus. We examined Judas's betrayal of Jesus, at least the plot and the plan with the Sanhedrin last week. But it is credited to God that he is in control here. For instance, when Jesus says, it is one of the 12 who is dipping bread in the dish with me, Jesus is looking back some thousand years or so to a messianic psalm written by David. Psalm 41 is a messianic psalm that was written about the life of David, but looks forward to one who is the new and better David, ultimately Jesus. And there are several places in the New Testament that look back on Psalm 41 as Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of that messianic psalm. And one of those places is right here. Because Psalm 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Here's what the psalmist says. The psalmist says that the Messiah, if we read that th psalm through messianic lens, meaning we, we read that psalm looking forward to an ultimate fulfillment, there would be one who eats bread with the Messiah who would ultimately betray him. And Jesus, looking all that way back, hundreds of years back, says it is one of the 12 who is dipping bread in the dish with me. It is not by accident that one of the 12 betrayed Jesus. It was the sovereign plan of God that it would happen. Jesus says in verse 21, for the son of man goes as it is written. Reminding us again, not only referencing a messianic psalm, but reminding that all of the Old Testament is moving towards this ultimate completion in the life of Jesus. And he uses an Old Testament term that is the most popular way that Jesus referred about himself, spoke of himself, son of man. No one else calls him that. His disciples don't call him that. The New Testament church doesn't call him that. The apostles don't call him that as they're writing back about him. It was his name for himself. We've seen that numerous on numerous occasions in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus referring to himself with this eschatological title. It is a title 
that Daniel gives to the Messiah viewing the, the, the coming of the Messiah. It's not picked up anywhere else in the New Testament, but Jesus calls himself that. But Daniel never tells us that the Son of Man will suffer. Daniel never tells us that the Son of Man will be betrayed, but Jesus says the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. And so what Jesus is doing is he is connecting the eschatological title, the end times title for the Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, with other scriptures, one of them being Isaiah 53, that talks about the suffering servant who is the Messiah. Listen to the first, I want to do the first 10 verses. I'm going to come back to the end of this in a moment. This is kind of lengthy, but I just want you to read this and think that this is what Jesus is referring to as he, as he references his betrayal and what is coming the next day on the cross. Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Make no mistake. It was the will of God foretold hundreds of years even before Jesus. It was the will of God that the Messiah would come and lay down his life for many. And this would come by the betrayal of a close friend, a disciple named Judas. I told you last week, don't make excuses for Judas. Some, some of us in our flesh, we want to make excuses for him. We want to kind of make it sound as if what Judas did really wasn't even necessary or all that bad, or maybe it was misconstrued by the disciples that are writing this for us. But hear what Jesus says in verse 21, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus clearly tells us that his betrayer, Judas, is responsible for his actions. Now, this leads us to an important theological point, but I am grateful that as a church, I believe we hold these things together. We don't err on one side or another. We can believe that both of these are true, and that is that God is sovereign, and yet man is responsible. 
that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or his free agency are not mutually exclusive ideas, we can wholeheartedly affirm both because scripture loudly and clearly affirms both. It is not an either or. You're not a sovereignty of God guy or a agency of man, man's responsibility guy. Be both. I've used this illustration before. When I preach passages like this, I like this illustration. I will remind you of this illustration every time until everybody gets it. You ready? The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. When he would preach texts like this, he would give this illustration. He would say, imagine yourself standing on a railroad track. And on your left is the sovereignty of God. And on your right is the free agency of man. And it seems as if from your perspective that these two straight lines can never meet. But you look off in the distance and this straight line on your left and straight line on your right meet on the horizon. He said that horizon is the throne of God. And so where does the sovereignty of God and the free agency of man meet? They meet in the throne of God. God is the one who establishes them. He is the one that says he is in control and ordains all things. And he is the one that says, choose you this day who you will serve. He is the one who says, it is better if this man had not ever been born. Yes, God is sovereignly orchestrating the events of these last days of Jesus's life. But Judas is 100% responsible for his actions. Peter would include this same idea in his sermon at Pentecost. Just weeks later, in Acts 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Delivered up. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, free agency of man. These things we hold together, recognizing and affirming that God is both sovereign and every single human being will be held responsible for his or her actions. Another little mini application. If you're here today, just think about it just in the present, right? If you are here today, it is because God ordained that you would be here. And it's because you remember to set your clocks forward last night. (laughs) Sovereignty of God, free agency of man on display. Could this be the last time we have to change our clocks, oh Lord? (laughs) Number three, a sovereignly prepared covenant. Look at these final verses. And as they were eating... They're in the Passover meal, which progresses along in in a very specific way. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this as my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, this this brief description of the Lord's Supper, some of the other gospel accounts give us more lengthy descriptions of the Lord's Supper, but Mark, as Mark most often does, embraces brevity, and he gives us a very brief 
description of the institution of what we know as the Lord's Supper or communion. We cannot know what's happening here without knowing when, what this is looking back on. This is looking back on Israel in slavery in Egypt and God delivering them out of slavery and covenanting with them to do so. Specifically, I mean, we can narrow this down to two verses in, in Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. God tells Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you from an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. It's how we know that we can go and that we can go that specifically and look at those verses is because for thousands of years after that, as Israelites celebrated the Passover, they did it with four cups of wine. One each for the I will statements in Exodus 6, 6 and 7. The first cup celebrating that God would bring them out. The second cup celebrating that God would deliver them. The third cup celebrating that God would redeem them. And finally the fourth cup that he would take them to be his people. And because of Mark's description for us about they were already eating and then in that moment Jesus takes bread and breaks it and gives it to them. We can know where they are in the Passover meal. They are between the second and the third cup. So Jesus takes this unleavened bread, which is, again, the feast of unleavened bread. They removed all leaven from their homes in remembrance of uh, that final curse, that final judgment of Egypt and the Passover lamb and the removing of the removing of leaven from their homes then so they could be ready to flee out of Egypt at the hand of God, that they, they, they would eat this unleavened bread as a part of the meal. And Jesus takes this and shows them that it represents his body. Breaking it in front of them, traditional to the meal, breaking it in front of them, saying that this is for you. Then the third cup that they would take is the cup that Jesus uses to show them that a new covenant is now coming. The cup that corresponds with Exodus 6, 6, that I will redeem you. Jesus is saying, I will be your redeemer. And then Mark tells us that Jesus skips that fourth and final cup, looking forward to its ultimate fulfillment in the eschatological kingdom of God. That Jesus only drinks this cup of redemption And he establishes a covenant in his blood. Fast forward to Exodus 24. The people of God are now out of Egypt. God kept his promise. He is bringing them to the Holy Land. And God does this with Moses. Moses came, this is starting in verse 3 of Exodus 24. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose up in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in, put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. That's what he had just written and read it to the 
uh, to the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you according, uh, in accordance with all these words. So the old covenant sealed in blood, half of which is thrown on the altar, half of which is actually thrown on the people, sealing the covenant. And you'll notice twice during that time, the people said, we will do this. And if this was a movie with a narrator, the narrator would come on now and say, but they didn't. Because they didn't. They failed to do this over and again for centuries. They failed to observe the word of the Lord. They failed to uphold his covenant, which leads us to the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days of the Lord are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, like the covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. It's no longer going to be written. It's not going to be in them. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah says over and again, Israel has broken its covenant with God, but a day is coming when a new covenant will be established. And here, on this last night of the ministry of Jesus, observing the Passover meal, he takes that cup of redemption and he says, you drink this. And as you do know, I am now establishing that new covenant. And it's not with the blood of bulls that is splashed over a crowd. It is with the blood of the very son of God spilled for you. In Mark 10, Jesus had said, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he is now doing that. He is beginning that moment here at the Passover meal with his disciples. And notice, don't be concerned with this, but notice that he says, notice that that, that he says, many. This is my blood spilled for, for many. There are times when, when redemption is talked about in all terminology. There's times when it's talked about in many terminology. And just like with the sovereignty of God and the free agency of man, we can hold both of those things. When Jesus says many there, I think he's pointing back to Isaiah 53, the verses that we didn't read. Verses 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make, you'll notice it three times here, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and make intercession for the transgressors. So I think we can say, because the Bible says it, 
that in one sense, in an offering sense, in a proclamation sense of the gospel, Jesus died for all. And we do this. We go to the world declaring that Jesus died for all. And then, in 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 an applied sense, we say that Jesus died for many. Because there are only many who will be accounted righteous. There will only be many whose actual sins were bore by him, making intercession for those as transgressors. If you are in Christ, you are one of the many. And we celebrate that as we come to the Lord's table. We are reminded that his blood was spilled for us, the many. So what? We proclaim the new covenant of Jesus, established by his death and resurrection, until he returns. I hope what you've seen up until this point is God's sovereign hand controlling this night, and we will see it even more in the weeks to come. But we've seen, we've emphasized God's sovereign hand in control of this night. And now, 2,000 years later, we, the church of God, still remember the new covenant in the same way. The Apostle Paul helps us with this. He writes to the church at Corinth who was doing this incorrectly and he encourages them to, to, to remember the new covenant in a right way, establishing this or helping to further establish this as an ordinance for the church, a thing that we do together just as we baptize, like we baptized last week as the initial sign of the covenant. We take the Lord's Supper together as the ongoing sign of his covenant. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, this is what we do together. So we remember the establishment of the new covenant according to the broken body and spilled blood of our Lord. We proclaim remembering together what Jesus has done for us. And we proclaim to a watching world what Jesus has done for us. New Testament Christians were accused of of being cannibals because of the way that they took the Lord's Supper. Because that they would celebrate eating a body and drinking blood. The world views this as strange. Maybe someone sitting out there today goes, wait a second, are we really about to eat body and blood? No, we're about to eat crackers and juice. <laughs> oh, but what they represent is far more than crackers and juice. They remind us, the son of God, the son of man, the suffering servant sent by God to fulfill a sovereignly ordained plan to redeem the many by his blood. And the church of God proclaims and remembers that covenant together until he returns. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are in control. All things are done according to your will and your plan. Now you have ordained your world. We thank you, God, 
that while we may not fully understand many of the things we talk today about how your sovereignty and our free agency come together, about how a new, new covenant can be established, how, how God himself could die for us. We can affirm it is true because you have said it is true and we remind one another and we proclaim to the world this truth. We pray, God, that you would help us in this moment as we now come to your table together. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.